Good morning, church. I was just thinking about the words of that song, Oh, Love That Would Not Let Me Go. Do you guys, does anyone know the history of that song? George Matheson? He was um, a young man that had poor eyesight. At age 15, he was actually going blind. But he pursued an education in theological lines, and he got a lot of help from his sister. He graduated at age 19, and... Um, soon went totally blind, but his sister was there to help him, and after graduation, uh, he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he knew Latin, and with the help um, of his family, he was able to, to get through his studies, and then after graduation, he answered a call to serve as a pastor at a church in uh, Scotland. He had a successful ministry. And he was later called to serve as a, as a pastor in a 2,000-member church, a little bigger than this one. And then one day, one of his sisters uh, married, and basically he was left alone. Because, you know, you get married and you have to, like, go be with your wife or your husband or whatever, and he felt alone. He could actually preach sermons from memory. He couldn't read the Bible verses, but he preached them from memory and knew the Greek and the Hebrew. And in in this experience of feeling left alone, he wrote the words to that hymn, O love that will not let me go. So as you read those, those words, they really come home to our personal, practical experience, the emotions that we go through as people when we feel alone. And these were the words that were, were written by George as he felt alone. But yet, God was with him still, with a love that would not let him go. Well, we're studying Galatians chapter 5 now. We're in verses 13 through 15. Our scripture reading was taken from verse 13, so let's just look at that. Our our title for our, our message today is, Called to be Free. Called to be Free. You, my brothers and sisters, I'm reading from the NIV, Galatians 5.13, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, for you will be devoured. So, first of all, let's just define Christian freedom in the context of the book of Galatians, in the context of what we've been studying. Let's just define what Christian freedom looks like. There are four basic areas that constitute Christian freedom. Number one, we are free... From the past condemnation of our sin. We are free to just trust Jesus for our justification. To stand just as if we never sinned. Do you like that freedom that we have? That's freedom number one. Freedom number two. We are free from slavery to sin. In other words, we're free to trust in Christ for our sanctification. 
We don't have to be slaves. We don't have to keep doing and acting the way we do and act. We, we see things in ourselves that we don't like, and guess what? God can actually deliver us from those things. We don't have to be taken captive by those things. Number three, we're free from the fear of death. We have freedom to trust Jesus, that he's going to glorify us, that he's going to resurrect us, that, that death is just a sleep, that je- death is just temporary. It's not permanent. That God never designed that death would be a part of his plan and that death is actually an enemy of God and that God is actually going to break the shackles of death and resurrect us into fullness of life forevermore. We're free from the fear of death. We're free from the bondage of sin, and we're free from the condemnation of sin. And number four, this is the final freedom that Paul has been talking about in the book of Galatians. We have freedom from earning our salvation by keeping the law. Freedom to trust in the merit of Jesus for our salvation. We no longer have to trust in ourselves in working out our salvation by our works, by our obedience, we can trust fully in the salvation that's been given us in Jesus Christ. Do you like those freedoms that we have? Those are the four freedoms that Paul has been sharing with us through the book of Galatians. And we find this freedom is not only available, but it is practical in its application in our lives. So because he's our justification for past sins, right? Because he's relieved us of condemnation for anything we've ever done, he's paid the penalty for our sins. Therefore, we are free from that guilt of the past. Because he's our sanctification from present sin, because he lived a perfect life which covers all of our imperfections. We don't have to feel overwhelmed by our failures and imperfections. And he is freedom from the final consequence of sin because he was resurrected from the grave. That resurrection assures us that we will be resurrected from the grave, that all of our loved ones will be resurrected from the grave and glorified as they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And that is what God wants for every single human being on planet Earth. Unfortunately, not every single human being on planet Earth is going to accept that beautiful freedom that's been given us, gifted to us in Jesus Christ. But for those of us who accept it, it is sure. So, he's our freedom. Finally, from earning our salvation by law-keeping. Because the law requires absolute Perfect obedience always. Anyone have, has anyone attained to that? Absolute perfect obedience always. That's what the law requires. Absolute perfect obedience always. You got that in your pocket? I don't think any of us do, do we? And because the law requires absolute perfect obedience always, we need Jesus. Because Jesus actually absolutely and perfectly obeyed the law always. (laughs) He did that. He did that. And he's gifting that to us so that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who's always ever obeyed God's law of love. He always absolutely perfect loved people in God.
So we're called to be free. What does that mean? What does it look like? What does it mean that we're called to be free? Well, we are free now to forgive instead of to be revengeful because we've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Since Christ has removed our condemnation for our past sins, since we've been forgiven, we can now forgive. We can forgive others because we've been forgiven. It's very practical. We're free also to hope for change instead of to hate. Because we have hope that God is changing us. So now love hopes all things and believes all things and endures all things. So because we hope for the change that God is making in us, we can also hope for change for others. For political leaders, for our country, for the world, for for people that have mistreated us, we can actually hope that they will change. That's what love does. Love doesn't necessarily like what other people are doing, but love hopes that they'll change because love hopes that we'll change. And then also, we're free to trust instead of being afraid being fearful. We can trust because, because Jesus had entr- has entrusted to us everything necessary for salvation. He's given us everything. We're free to give instead of getting because God has given us an immortal inheritance. He's given us everything. So, so we can give now because we've, got, we've received everything from God. So the gospel sets us free. But it doesn't set us free to sin. It doesn't set us free to live a life that is, that is in harmony with the desires of our, of our sinful nature. The gospel sets us free to love, to love others, to give to others, to forgive others, to hope for others, to reach out to others. In the heart of every human being, I believe, is an inborn desire for freedom. We want to be politically free. We want to be economically free. We want to be socially free. And we want to be spiritually free. Young people especially feel this. This desire for freedom. To, to, to throw off the things that limit. And you know, it's, it's a difficult transition to go from, from youth to adulthood. Because parents naturally tend to restrict and control the environment of young people. We have to, to some degree, right? We can't just let these kids walk out the door and run around and do whatever. They could get run over by that truck that just went zooming by. None of you saw that, but I saw it. Anything could happen to harm them, and so we restrict and, and we, we protect. But then as children get older and smarter and wiser and more capable, when they get out of their high chairs and out of their diapers and out of their... Right? They start... Pushing the limits of freedom. It's natural for them. It's natural for us to want to be free. That's how babies are born. They want to be free. They want out of here. They want out of this little pocket. And they want out into the world. And that pursuit for freedom continues. And as parents, we have to move. We have a 20-year-old and we have a 25-year-old. We no longer have teenagers. So my wife and I, we have to transition from that controlling, nurturing, controlling environment to cultivate and develop the freedom that is inherent in every human being. And it's a difficult transition for, for parents to make. It's, it's hard. Because you think, just how much, just what, how? And then you have to think, well, how much freedom has God given you? And have you made any mistakes with your freedom? And how has God related to the mistakes you've made with the freedom he's given you? 
And then you think, okay, 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 okay. Thank you, Lord. Help me. Help me. Because sometimes as parents we think, if I'm giving freedom, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting that thing which I don't agree with. Well, God gives life and breath to all things, to all people. He's not necessarily, necessarily supporting the thing he doesn't agree with, but he's recognizing the principle of freedom and liberty. And it's, it's challenging for us as parents to do that. I know it's challenging for me to do that. I want to just turn the internet off. No access. <laughs> I want to be in control. But then i got to remember, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is God related to me and what kind of freedom has he given me? And I need to allow that freedom. And I need to develop that freedom in love so that the person, my son, my daughter, so that the people that we are giving freedom to recognize that it is something that is important and significant, but something that, that nurtures them to use that freedom in a way that is good, in a way that is unselfish, in a way that is other-centered. And this is what Paul is doing now as he moves the Galatians through the gospel and he tells them all about this beautiful message that God has delivered us from the power of sin and and the condemnation and the guilt of sin. And then he says, and God's love is poured out abundantly to all of you. So, So take that love and use that love not to indulge your sinful selves, but to love others. Share with others what God has given to you. Nurture others the way that God has nurtured you. And we learn from our experience with God how to relate to other people. And that's why it's so important that we understand how God relates to us. If we misunderstand how God relates to us, guess what? We're going to misrepresent God to other people. So the foundation is the gospel. The way that God relates to us, that motivates us to relate to other people in the way that we should, in the way of love. So... Christianity does not set us free to please ourselves. It sets us free to please our God. And this is really the message of these passages in Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 15. You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. For if you bite and devour one another, watch out for you will be destroyed by each other. You'll be devoured by one another. So number one, Christian freedom is not freedom to indulge the flesh. This is the first part of verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but not to use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Christian freedom, number two, is not to exploit, but to serve. This is the second part of the verse. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We are freed so we can serve. And that comes in little things as well as big things. My wife came home yesterday, and she said, James, thank you so much for cleaning the kitchen. Now, that used to be a big issue for me. My wife would hustle out of the house Tuesday morning because she had to drive to Portland two hours, and I would come down into the kitchen. She would leave maybe at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I would come down to the kitchen. It was a mess. I was like, I'm not cleaning up this mess. My wife left this mess. I'm not cleaning up this mess. It can sit here until she gets back. I'm just being honest, right? Is that okay? I'm not a perfect person. Were you expecting a perfect pastor or what? So I'm not cleaning up this mess. But then in time, I realized, wait a minute. God has called me to love as he's loved me. And what God did when he loved us was he took responsibility for our mess. He didn't ask who made the mess. He just took responsibility for the mess, right? 
I thought, wow, I, I can clean the kitchen. My wife is working. She's traveling to Portland early in the morning. I could sleep in if I wanted to. I don't, but I could sleep in if I wanted to. She's got to drive two hours, and then she's got to work a 12-hour shift. Then she's got to work another 12-hour shift. Then she's got to work another 12-hour shift. Then she's going to come all the way back here. She's going to come into the house, and she's going to find her messy kitchen that she left. That's not nice. So this week, she said, thank you for cleaning the kitchen. I said, no problem. In fact, I found that not only is it a blessing for her for me to clean the kitchen, but it's also a blessing for me. I actually enjoy doing it. Organizing the dishwasher and getting the last fork in there that can fit in there. So I'm making sure I'm fully utilizing that dish soap that we have to buy from Costco. You know, those little things. I don't want to waste any of that. And making sure everything is clean the way I like it to be clean and put away the way I like things put away. Which, by the way, my wife showed me this thing. It's really fun. You take the the silverware thing that's in the dishwasher where you put all the forks and the knives and everything and spoons, and you just lift the whole thing out. And instead of and open the silverware drawer, instead of putting the forks and where the forks, the knives go where the knives and the spoons go, you just take the whole thing and you just dump the whole thing. Just dump it in there. Get all the stuff so it's down. Just close the door. And then whoever gets stuff out, then they have to be responsible for finding the forks and the knives. She showed me that, and I, I, I love it now. It's really fun. It's the funnest part of emptying the dishwasher for me. Because I'm such a perfectionist, and I would put everything in its front. It takes so long. You know, you get a backache. Your back gets tight. So I just, I like, I save that for the last. Put the, all the other dishes away, and then I save that for the last. I'm like, Reese will be proud of me right now. This is, this is just a practical way that God has called us to be free. And what I found is it not only blesses other people, but you find yourself being blessed in the little things that God calls us to do. The little opportunities that we have to bless others. So when we look at this passage, when we look at these principles, we realize that that the gospel is calling us not to live in selfish indulgence, but it's calling us to give. It's calling us not to exploit our fellow men as some were doing. Now, I want to look at a text with you that kind of describes this, because you're like, exploit our fellow men. What does that mean? Well, in... Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. I'll just give you the reference. There were brothers and sisters in Thessalonica who were, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, were refusing to work. We'll start here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse, um, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. See, there were brothers and sisters who had taken advantage of Christians and their hospitality. And Paul was saying here, don't allow that to happen. Christians are called to serve one another. 
And anyone that takes advantage of another's charity, Paul says, should not be allowed to do this. That the freedom that we have is not a freedom to take advantage of wealthy people, but that we should all work for our daily bread. The church would come together and they would have all things in common and they would give to the poor. And some people said, well, actually I'm a further ahead just being poor. If I don't do anything, I can just eat and drink and I'll be fine. (laughs) And there are people in this world that do that. There There are actually people that will beg on street corners that actually live in nice houses and have a nice car and they have you know, a nice life, but they go out and beg because they don't really want to work. They just want people to give them money. It's a big scam, or it has, a bit, it has been a big scam in the past. And I know they've talked about this. They've worked on this here in Eugene. You don't see as many people on the corners anymore because they're trying to develop, and there's a major ministry that's developed here, the Eugene Mission. They're trying to develop mission so that if you really do want to better your life, you can. And there are ways to do that. And we as a church support that mission. So, Christian freedom is not a freedom to take advantage of other people who work hard and have means and just to sit back and do nothing. God is calling us to bear responsibility also, to work with our hands. Paul says here, he worked day and night. He could have received income for preaching the gospel, and there were many times when he didn't. He just worked with his hands and labored for his income. And then finally... um, Christian freedom is not a disregard of God's law. Now, there are many people who think that Paul is against the law. They'll read his writings in Galatians, in Romans, in Colossians, and they'll come to the conclusion that that Paul is against the law. He's against God's law. Well, Paul is not against the law. He is against the law being used as a method of salvation. That's what he's against. He's against using the law as a means of earning your salvation. He's Deathly against that. And the whole Bible is, actually. There's nowhere in the Bible, not in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, where it teaches that we can gain salvation through our obedience to the law. All of, all of salvation in the Old and New Testament is by faith in the Lamb of God. The Old Testament believers look forward to the Lamb. The New Testament believers, we look back to the Lamb, but everything goes centers in the cross. And so Paul is especially emphasizing this truth. But at the same time, when it comes to the law as a standard of Christian living, Paul upholds the law. The law, especially the spirit of the law, which is love, must be upheld as the standard of Christian living. Because that is not a means of salvation, but a means of us relating to people. And to God. How do we relate to other people? How do we relate to in love? If I didn't understand the principles of love, my wife would come home to a messy kitchen after working three 12-hour shifts, right? It's the principle of love that causes us to step out of ourselves and do for others, bear others' burdens. It's the principle of love, of God loving us unconditionally, it causes us to love others unconditionally. That's why Paul says the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Some people say, well, see, there's no law. It's just love your neighbor as yourself. And what that means, well, it means anything to anyone. No, it's the fulfilling of the principles that God has given us in thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill and honor your father and your mother and don't covet 
your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's girl, all of those principles are encapsulated in this one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. They're all there. So even in the words of Christ, Matthew chapter 19, to the young man who asked, good master, what good things should I do to to gain eternal life? He pointed him to loving his neighbor as himself. Well, what does the law say? Well, I've done everything the law says. Okay, well, one other thing you need to do. Uh, Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. (laughs) And what did he say then? What did the rich young ruler say then? Uh, Actually, I can't do that. Well, obviously then, you have not been loving your neighbor as yourself. Your goods, your things are more important to you than people. And sometimes that's the way it is with us. I remember recently listening to a testimony from Steve Green. Steve Green, a famous gospel singer, used to listen to him all the time. A lot of my life, he says, has been spent wanting to make an impressive record for myself, wanting to be just the best Christian artist there ever was and prove to God and to the world that I'm really good. I'm really good. But I'm not. And the trouble is that impressiveness works in the church. It just does. People are impressed by us. Well, a bunch of years later now, 30 years later, my only story is that I just don't have a good record, and that's why I have to have the record of another, and that's Jesus. And I've discovered there's only one hero to any story and to all of our stories. If there's any shred of faithfulness in my life, it's only the faithful one, not me. So the hero of our story is Jesus Christ. I can't be pointed, excuse me, I can't be painted in any better light than I am or in any better picture than I am because I just ain't. I just ain't. I realized in my own experience that that testimony of Steve Green, that testimony of his life some 30 years later, is totally and completely relatable to me. Because we want to come across as good, as righteous. We want to impress people. We don't want to tell people about our failure to clean the kitchen for our wives. We don't want to talk about what really is in our hearts, the selfishness, the slime of selfishness that's really there. We want people to think that we're really something special. Well, we're not. We're just sinners saved by grace. But when we come to the place where we can admit that to ourselves and to others, it frees us. It frees us to actually be better because we can let go of all that impressiveness and we can go to God and just ask Him to change us and transform us and just believe that He will. We can get rid of all the fake stuff and we can be real people. We can talk about our failures in the presence of grace, basking in the grace of God. And that's what we have in Christ. We have this grace that we just bask in. And then we can be gracious to others. But if not, if we're earning our salvation, then we're going to bite and devour one another. If you, if, if you bite and devour one another, you are doing what legalism produces. You see, the moment we go under the umbrella of legalism... We no longer look at Christ for our salvation. We look at ourselves. Under grace, all of us 
are 100% sinners saved by grace. Therefore, there's nothing for us to compare ourselves with each other. We can't try to over-impress one another because we're all just sinners saved by grace. We are all in the same position, totally deprived, depraved, saved by grace. Our hearts are filled with joy and gratitude, but legalism looks at our performance. Our performances are not the same. And we discover that when a person is a legalist, he tends to judge himself or compare himself with those who are less successful than he is. Huh. Bo's not eating quite the way that I do. I'm putting down a little bit more of those Lorewood oranges than he is. And as we do that, we have a lot of controversy that develops. We have a lot of devouring each other that develops. We have a lot of judging that develops because we're comparing each other with each other. And all that comparison causes us to criticize and become negative and judgmental. And we step out of this this grace and we start looking at other people in a way that causes us to feel justified, better, superior, more impressive than them. And then what happens? Well, the church ceases to be a loving church when legalism comes in. It becomes a church full of jealousy, backbiting, gossip, judging one another. And that is the fruit of legalism. So what is our conclusion regarding this passage? What is it that Paul's trying to bring to us? The Christian life is neither a life of legalism nor a life of license. We don't earn our salvation by our works, and we don't live to do as we please. It is a life of liberty, Christian liberty. And those Christian liberties that we receive bring certain responsibilities. And the responsibilities that we receive through that liberty is to love, because we've been loved. To not be condemning, because we're not condemned. To hope better for others, because we hope better for ourselves. To give to others, because God has given everything to us. And to live in grace, because we're saved by grace. And we want others to be saved by that same grace. So in summary... Our study in Galatians 5, 13 to 15 is telling us that we need to completely change the way we relate to one another. It warns us away from legalism because legalism causes us to relate to one another with critical eyes and judgmental eyes instead of with gracious eyes. He warns them about this legalism that causes us to judge, but he also warns about this cheap grace that causes us to live a life of self-indulgence. And we swing from one extreme to the other often until we finally take a hold of the gospel. The only way we can be delivered from this, and it's not in our power, it's not in our strength, is to focus on Jesus. Keep your focus on the gospel. Keep your focus on him. Keep following the Lamb. Because the summation of the entire Bible, the summation of everything that God is saying to us, is found in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation, that prophetic book, that final book of the Bible, is not primarily a warning about the beast and the mark of the beast and the judgments and the plagues and all the terrible things that are going to happen. That book is primarily a message of hope. Here are they that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. 
wherever he goes. Amidst all of the, the, the controversy and all the political maneuverings and all of the, the power struggles and, and the death threats and, and the enforcement of mark, the mark of the beast so no man can buy stuff. In the midst of all of that last day uh, pr- prophecy, there's one message that signs clear again and again. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. And he will take you through all your tr- struggles and trials. He will take you through and past the conflicts between the beast and its enforcement of the mark. He will take you past the the fear of not being able to buy and sell. And he will move you all the way through to the glorious kingdom of God. He will take you safely in to God's kingdom in the end. That's the bottom line message. The book of Revelation is delivering the same message that Paul delivers in the book of Galatians. In the end, it's all about trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And really, that's my prayer for you. I'm praying that you'll just stay on that narrow road that leads to the eternal city, that you'll keep your focus on Jesus, not upon people. That if someone comes to you with gossip, with something that they want to say, with some critical statement they want to tell you, that you'll say, well, let's go talk to that brother or sister, or let's, go, let's pray for them right now. If someone points out something that you're not doing quite right, somewhere where you're falling short, James, how come you're not cleaning the kitchen with wives? Oh, thank you for pointing that out. Would you pray for me? I, I really need to be a little bit more unselfish in the way that I relate to my, to my wife. We're, we're in this journey together. And the only reason God would allow us to come in contact with the faults and failings of one another is so that we could pray for each other and lift each other up. We're not in competition here. You're not going to earn salvation by being better than everyone else. God has given you salvation. It's a gift. And he wants you to share that gift with others, to pray for one another and to bear one another's burdens. And that's what church is really all about. That's why we're here. That's what it's all about. And that's what the message that Paul is bringing back to the church in Galatia. And I pray that it will be the same message that we ourselves will be blessed by, that we'll receive and will motivate us to move forward together as a church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for each and every person that's here. Thank you for the message in the book of Galatians to the brothers and sisters there that were struggling, struggling with with legalism on the one hand and cheap grace on the other hand. Thank you that you've given us an answer, that you've dealt with a problem then that is apparent today. And Father, in the quiet of this moment, I want to give an opportunity for people to respond to this message. I'm asking those who want to say yes. I want to be like Jesus, and I want to follow him, and I want to be unselfish in my actions to people, to my wife, my husband, my, my, my parents, my children, my neighbors, my work people, my friends. I want to say yes to Jesus. Father, I'm praying that at this moment that they would just raise their hands and say yes, yes. I want that in my heart and I want that in my life. Thank you so much for every hand that's raised, Father. Bless each one of them. Bless us as a church. Help us to move forward together in love, avoiding the two extremes, focusing on Christ, embracing his grace and sharing it with others. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.